Well, today I'm starting a new uh, book. Uh, be preaching through, Lord willing, the book of Second Timothy, and um, it does come right after First Timothy, and uh, it's right before the book of Titus. And uh, these three books are known as the pastoral epistles because the Apostle Paul wrote them to two different pastors, to Timothy and to Titus, who were uh, ministers over the churches, one in Ephesus and one um, in Crete, I believe, is where Titus was. But in uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, I'm going to read today the first Five verses of this introductory section. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. This is the inspired Word of God. It is authoritative. It is needful for us. Let's pray for God's blessing. Lord, we thank you for this Word. Thank you for this book. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us much grace and help from the Holy Spirit to understand it. Uh, Lord, be with me and enable me to, uh, to teach to explain and to preach your word faithfully. And we thank you that you are the ever-faithful God as revealed in this book and all the books of the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. It's natural to care about the welfare of our children. For those who have children, uh, we, we sought, if we had children, we sought to bring them up, to raise them so that they could become uh, one day self-sufficient and live on their own in the world, among many other things. That's one of the goals that we have uh, for our children. Of course, we have spiritual goals, but we also have spiritual children. For our spiritual children, we also have concern, no less concern. The Apostle Paul surely had many spiritual children, but Timothy was one that had a special place in his heart. And he refers to him here as my beloved Son, that's pretty, uh, pretty special uh, commendation. In the introduction to First Timothy, Paul refers to him as my true son in the faith. <clears throat> Paul, of course, was an apostle called later in time than the others, uh, but he was a genuine apostle, and he had therefore apostolic authority. Uh, in and over the churches of Jesus Christ, over ministers like Timothy. He uh, acted with authority. God had called Paul directly through Jesus Christ, uh, you know, on the road to Damascus. 
Uh, he, he met Paul. Paul met him, the risen Lord. But, you know, Paul's time on earth was about to come to an end. And in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, The time of my departure is at hand. So this letter to Timothy actually is the very last epistle that he would write that's recorded for us in Scripture. And knowing these would probably be his last words to Timothy, unless he was able to see him again. Uh, Paul wanted to encourage him and prepare him uh, to take more leadership in the future uh, after Paul left uh, the world, after Paul died. So Paul was writing uh, from a Roman prison. Some would say it was a dungeon. And there are descriptions of, of the, the place where Paul was uh was staying. It was not a Hilton. It was not a nice experience. But, but Timothy, as I said, was a pastor in Ephesus. And so uh, Timothy had been uh, left there, had been appointed to be the pastor there. You know, Paul was constantly on the move. He was a missionary. He was a church planter. But he wanted Timothy and Titus and, and others, I'm sure, to, to stay put, to stay in one place. And to shepherd their respective congregations. uh, To build them up by the preaching of the word week by week, day by day. That's the calling of of a pastor. And so uh, for Paul, the the local church was the primary agency of of building up the people of God. But also of sending them out in the work of missions and church planting and, uh, and of witnessing. And as you read the pastoral epistles, there's no thought uh, whatsoever uh, that a Christian can dispense with the local church and somehow be a Christian or, and serve God and not be connected to the local church. Um, you won't find that in these epistles. <clears throat> You'll see how vital the church is. But we see uh, in these epistles, and certainly in 2 Timothy, you find such... Topics being addressed as uh, proper church administration, sound doctrine, bold preaching, holy living. We see the emphasis on the gospel of salvation throughout. Uh, Calvin has his own list. He says, we read here of the kingdom of Christ, in particular in 2 Timothy, the kingdom of Christ, the hope of eternal life, uh, the Christian warfare, Confidence in confessing Christ and the certainty of doctrine. No problem. Uh, So these are some of the things that uh, Paul writes about in this letter. And and Calvin said that, that, that these things ought to be viewed by us as written not with ink, but with Paul's own blood. In other words, he was willing to die for these truths. You say... Uh, you know, are you willing to die on that hill? Or are you willing to die for this truth or that truth? You know, there's some things, you know, we might say, no, I'm not willing to die for that. But the things Paul writes here, he certainly <clears throat> was willing uh, to seal it with his own blood if need be. <clears throat> Besides these words, of course, are the very inspired words of, <clears throat> of God, excuse me, uh, so they uh, carry not merely the authority of a great man, but they carry the <clears throat> very authority of God himself. And so the words are written 
to Timothy, but they're written for the church, for the church and for us today. Uh, Paul is going to urge Timothy later in this epistle to hold fast to the teachings that he was given. And that's what we're called to do. And we would do well as we go through this book to take these teachings, not to let them, uh, you know, be uh, in one ear and out the other, but to take hold of them and do what Psalm 119 told us to do, to meditate on these words. The future of the church depends upon us grasping the truths that we find in this letter. So three things we want to look at today. And the first is found in verse one, the promise of life. Uh, Paul said, you know, he writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. It's a very personal letter that he writes to Timothy, and yet Paul knows, in fact, he intends it to be read in the churches, to be studied and uh, by the church. And so he is reminding not only Timothy, but the church of his apostolic authority. Paul didn't choose to be an apostle. He wasn't uh, nominated and elected to be an apostle. He was appointed by the will of God. God put him there. And, and again, his, his apostleship was no different in terms of his authority and his place in the church at that time. No different than the twelve who were chosen and called during Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, Jesus called Paul from heaven, as it were, as he appeared uh, as a resurrection appearance to Paul. And so... <clears throat> The apostolic authority that Paul had is no longer uh, in human beings. It was not passed on. There's no apostolic succession today of any kind. Uh, And yet the authority of an apostle does remain. It remains in the scriptures. It remains in the very words that they wrote uh, and are recorded in scripture for us. Paul states that his apostleship was according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. He could have said according to the promise of the gospel. Uh, The gospel is the promise of life. Believe the gospel and you shall live. What happens when a person believes the gospel? They, They are made new. New creatures in Christ. They are uh, given new life. They are given eternal life. Eternal life. This life comes, of course, as a result of the work of the Spirit of God. Uh, The regenerating work of the Spirit uh, brings life. And this promise, this promise of life goes way back. As far back as Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise we find where God promises to send the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. God called Paul to proclaim this ancient promise that was fulfilled by the, with the coming of Christ. And, and thus we see the main purpose of Paul's apostleship, and that is to bring people to Christ that they might have life 
and that they might be built up uh, in their faith and in that life. So, what I ask you this morning, have you believed in this promise of life? A promise is a guarantee, it's a, it's a statement of God saying, this is what I will do for the person who believes in my son. They will have life and have it to the full. Have you come to Christ and received life? Second in our passage, we find in verse 2, a threefold blessing. Paul writes to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> Again, notice the love uh, that Paul had for Timothy, my beloved son. He cared for Paul. He knew the difficulties that, that Timothy was going to be facing soon, uh, the suffering that he would go through for the sake of the gospel. And he's passing on the mantle of leadership, uh, a greater leadership role <clears throat> over the churches. Every minister needs a great deal of grace, mercy, and peace. Most of the time in his epistles, Paul simply writes grace and peace, but he adds mercy to the list, uh, maybe because, as Spurgeon said, ministers need more than other people. But uh, <clears throat> these are three theological terms, easy for us to just uh, skip over because they're so familiar, and yet they're almost too familiar so that they don't have as, as much meaning for us after a while. Briefly looking at these terms, grace we know is the unmerited favor of God that brings salvation. It's the idea of, of a gift uh, that we didn't deserve and couldn't earn. But grace is, is, is also the enabling help of God for the believer. And so uh, we should pray uh, often for more of God's grace. God has an infinite supply. You can't exhaust the supply of grace, uh, but maybe you will go without because you didn't ask for very much of it. Mercy, of course, is, is God's kindness to those who are in need, uh, who are in misery, particularly uh, because of their own sin. But it's his, his kindness to those who are afflicted in any sort of way. Uh, it has to do with his tender compassion toward miserable sinners such as we are. And so ministers, of course, and all believers, we, we fail often. And we need to know that, that God's mercy is such that he is willing to forgive us over and over and over again. Uh, you say, well, I've blown it this time. Uh, I knew better, and I sinned anyway. The Lord will forgive you. The Lord will show mercy. You say, but I've done it a lot. I've committed many, many sins. How can he forgive me when I've sinned so much? Because he's a merciful God. And he will continue to forgive you, to love you, in spite of your weakness, in spite of your mistakes. And of course, peace uh, is a result of God's grace and mercy at work in your life. If you receive grace and mercy, you'll have peace. Uh, but peace is, is the idea of peace of conscience, knowing that I'm right with God, uh, knowing that I'm justified by faith. I have peace with God <clears throat> through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for me. But peace is that, that feeling that, uh, of well-being, 
of having uh, spiritual as well as temporal blessings in your life. And according to Philippians 4, 6, and 7, peace comes when we offer our petitions to God with thanksgiving, and when we cast our cares on Him, and uh, God brings peace to our hearts, which acts as a protection, a, a protecting guard uh, in our life. So are you experiencing experiencing his peace if not uh you probably need to go back and and examine whether you have really been looking to the lord for grace and his mercy the source of our peace is from god the father and christ jesus our lord so if you're trying to find peace somewhere else no wonder you don't have it it's from from god the father through jesus christ our lord True peace comes from nowhere else. Third from our passage, and we'll spend longer on this point, the last three verses, verses 3 through 5, we see Paul's thanksgiving, which he often does in many of his epistles. He gives a, a, a word of thanks either to the church or to the individual he's writing to. And this time he says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. So first of all, he's thankful uh, in prayer, uh, as he prays for Timothy, but he also is thankful for the pure conscience that God has given to him personally. And uh, the Greek word serve here, he says, I serve God with a pure conscience, can also be translated worship. So Paul, in order to rightly worship God, to rightly serve God, Paul is saying, you you must have a clear conscience. And that's something that he had. Something that you and I need. A clear conscience. What is the conscience? Well, it is um, it's, it's, the, it's the, the moral intuition, if you will. It's the, it's the thing that God has put in your very soul. Even in the soul of an unbeliever that uh, either approves or condemns of your thoughts, words, and deeds. Uh, it, it helps to let you know when you have fallen short of God's uh, commandments and so forth. Well, to, how do you get a clear conscience? Well, doing the same thing I was talking about a moment ago, asking for the Lord's forgiveness, asking him to cleanse your conscience, and, uh, and then to let your conscience be guided by Scripture. Even without the scriptures, there's, there's a certain amount of the law that's been written on the heart of man. Of course, sin has muddied the waters greatly, and the conscience is not to be fully trusted, especially the unbelieving conscience. But for the believer, then we need to make sure our conscience is formed by scripture. Now, Paul as a Christian wanted to make it clear that his service to God, his worship of God was in continuity with his Jewish forefathers. Remember, Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was raised as a Jew. Uh, he was a child of Abraham. He served the same God. You see, even though he was a Christian now, he wanted his readers to know, he wanted his detractors to know uh, that he had the same faith as all faithful Jews in the past and that he was not making up a new religion uh, at all. And so, and people were accusing him of that. But his faith is the same with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with, with Moses, with, 
with David, with the prophets. And, and so what we see here is that there's unity between the Old and the New Covenant, between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, they're not opposed to each other at all. Uh, one is the, the new is the fulfillment of the old. And so Abraham, uh, we, we look at Abraham and we see Paul references him in Romans saying that he was justified by faith just as we are. There's no difference other than that he was looking forward to Christ who was to come. Paul and, and we look back to Christ who has already come. And so Christ alone, you see, uh, gives us this clear conscience, enabling us to worship God acceptably. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, they offered the sacrifices. But those sacrifices pointed to Christ. And once he had come, he fulfilled those when he died as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And that's what we do today to remember what he has done for us. So Paul's faith rooted in the Old Testament, rooted in the Old Covenant, and yet flowering in the New. And so our faith as well is rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, unlike some uh, preachers today who want to say you don't need the Old Testament, <clears throat> we say you cannot fully understand the New without the Old Testament, and we need both. Both are the inspired word of God and really the New Testament makes little sense apart from the old because in every way there's continuity, there's unity, there's uh, one is the foundation, the other is built upon it. So part of Paul's worship <clears throat> involves his earnest prayers. Verse three, as without ceasing, I remember you and my prayers night and day. And I'm sure he wouldn't have said that if it wasn't true. He literally, every time he prayed, would pray for Timothy. He was on his heart. And, and we might ask a question, you know, what made Paul's ministry as an apostle, as a preacher, as a missionary, and so forth, what made his ministry so fruitful, so impactful? Well, I would suggest that it had a lot to do with his powerful prayer life. Um, Paul was a man of prayer. Every great servant, really, of God in history has been a great man or woman of prayer. And I don't think there are any exceptions to this. Uh, you say, I want to serve God. I want, to, I, want to, I want him to use me. You better be a person of prayer. You better up your prayer life. That's what Paul did. And uh, if we want to see God do great things in our own church, we need to be praying day and night for his blessing upon the church here at Unity. Well, in his commentary on the pastoral epistles, Douglas Milne notes, he says, Paul didn't rely on organizational skills, but on spiritual methods in his work for the kingdom of Christ. Now, organization is, is important, and, and, and uh, we don't deny that. But his methods were spiritual methods. And prayer is one of the chief spiritual tools that Paul had uh, in his work for the kingdom. And Paul's prayers, of course, were, were very sincere and heartfelt. As in verse 4, you know, he says, Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. He remembers the last time they saw each other. No doubt Timothy... Uh, was weeping, probably Paul was as well. 
this is not a picture of, uh, of a stiff and formal relationship. This was uh, a relationship where uh, Paul, as Timothy's spiritual father, loved his son and the son loved the spiritual father. And Paul, you know, even though he probably shed a few tears of his own, his dominant note here was joy. He says, I want to see you again that I might be filled with joy. There's joy when I remember your faith, Timothy. And he couldn't help but rejoice to see what God had done in Timothy's life and how he had given him faith and how he had built him up in that faith. Um, and Paul describes his faith in this way, your genuine faith, or some translations might say sincere faith. And the Greek word here is literally without hypocrisy. Your faith, it is without hypocrisy. It was the real, his faith was the real thing. It was not a mere outward profession, uh, but it was personal faith from the heart. And that resulted in a changed life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul referred to Timothy as a true son in the faith, a genuine convert. And there are a lot of converts today, but they're not all genuine, are they? How, how do we know the difference? We'll talk about that in a minute. But Paul knew Timothy. He knew that his faith was the real thing. What about your own faith? Is it genuine? Is it the real thing? How do we know that? Well, first of all, remember, we're good at judging others and saying, well, I don't think they're for real. Um, but God tells us not you know, to be careful not to judge before the time, not to judge what we don't know. We don't know another person's heart. Yes, we are. There are times when we are called to actually make judgments, especially the leaders of the church, on uh, certain behaviors that are not repented of, and we may have to act uh, in accord with what we see. But we cannot judge a person's heart. But the Bible tells us to examine our own faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Well, how do we do that? I just want to offer a few ways um, as, we, as we wind up in the next few minutes. First of all, faith, true faith, genuine faith, comes from hearing and believing to be true uh, whatever is written in the Word of God. Okay? You say, do I have genuine faith? Do you believe that every word of God in the, in the Bible is uh, the inspired, inerrant word of God? Uh, genuine faith must be based upon the scriptures. It's not conjecture. It's not human wisdom. Uh, you and I, to have true faith, must believe in the inspiration, the divine authority of the written word of God. Next, true saving faith is... is a matter of the heart that's brought about by the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said a person must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, to understand, to, and also to enter the kingdom of God. The new birth indeed produces um, genuine faith. Romans 10.9 tells us more about the nature of genuine faith. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Genuine faith is saving faith. And it means that you must believe certain things to be true 
especially about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You must believe that he is Lord, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, uh, that he is the Lord God Almighty, the, the very Son of the living God. You must believe that he died and rose from the dead. Uh, the, these are facts. These are truths that you must believe. Uh, belief in the truth of the Bible, again, especially about the person and work of Christ, is absolutely essential. It's necessary for salvation. However, mere intellectual belief and acceptance of these truths will not save you. James said that the demons believe and they shudder. The demons believe the same truths. They know them to be true, in fact. Uh, but they do not embrace them <clears throat> by faith. Uh, so it's one thing to believe these things to be true. Another thing to, to personally receive Jesus Christ and trust in those things as being for me. That he died for me. He rose for me. He's saved me. And, um, and so we need to personally call upon Jesus to save us from our sins. Each person needs to have that personal uh, direct approach to God for salvation. You cannot depend on someone else. Uh, it must be a direct encounter with the living God. So faith that is genuine involves personal trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. I like uh, Dr. Burkhoff in his manual of Christian doctrine. Uh, he writes that true saving faith is, quote, it consists in a personal trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, which includes a surrender of the soul as guilty and defiled to Christ and a reception and appropriation of him as the source and pardon of spiritual life. And so we see uh, several elements here. It's a personal trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's a surrender of the soul as guilty and defiled, but then receiving and the, in appropriating Christ as a source of pardon and life. And that faith, true, genuine faith, comes with a measure of assurance. With it, uh, you'll have some sense of assurance that your sins are forgiven. You must have some sense of belief that I do have salvation, that I have trusted in Him for salvation, that He's given me salvation. So genuine faith, I'm not going to say never doubts at all, but genuine faith has more assurance than doubts. And if you have doubts, uh, there are ways to deal with those. But, but genuine faith takes God's word as it is and says, I believe it. And it settles it. I believe Christ died for me. I received Christ. I've trusted in him. And in spite of all, all other things, I know his word is true and I'm banking on it. So saving faith is of course, if it's genuine, it places no trust at all in yourself, in your performance, in your goodness. There is none. Uh, it places no confidence in the church for salvation. I, I emphasized at the beginning the importance of the church, that a Christian cannot be a Christian apart from the church, but the church doesn't save us. The sacraments do not save you. If you partake in the Lord's Supper, uh, it's because you have already been saved. And this is what we're doing. We're rejoicing in what the Lord has done. Saving faith is trusting in Christ alone for salvation. You've heard me say that, I'm sure, many, many times. Uh, 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I love to hear these words because it's just the reminder that we all need. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. Why are you looking at yourself? That's why you're doubting. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there's nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your works. Genuine faith, however, always results in good works, doesn't it? Because the very next verse in Ephesians 2 says, Where is workmanship created in Christ for good works? So are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Are you seeking to live a life of good works, demonstrating that Christ lives in you and is working through you? Then, if so, then your faith is genuine. You say, yes, it's a work in progress. Uh, it is and it isn't. Saving faith is, is something that brings us to Christ and converts us to Christ. Uh, that can never be undone. But the process of growing in our faith, strengthening our faith, uh, it takes a lifetime. So Paul goes on, he highlights uh, the spiritual heritage that Timothy had. Sometimes we can trust and in, in the faith of our parents and grandparents. And, and Paul's not saying that here. But he says, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. Paul had already mentioned his spiritual forefathers and, and the heritage that he had. Now he encourages Timothy to reflect upon his own spiritual heritage. <clears throat> he had learned from his grandmother and his mother uh, at an early age, truths about um, salvation. Second Timothy 3.15, from childhood, he said, You've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. So here we have uh, Paul's opening words to Timothy. And he was confident and wanted to encourage him. He said, I see genuine faith in you, Timothy. That faith that was passed on to you. Now, <clears throat> what's, what he's going to teach, he says you know, later, he says, take what I have, what, the faith that has been given to you and pass it on to others. Teach others uh, these things that you have learned. And I would encourage you to do the same. You may not have children in the home now. Uh, what you did for them uh, when they were in the home is was important, but you can continue to pray for them. But you and I have influence perhaps over our children still and, and our grandchildren. <clears throat> and uh, certainly I think we see the with, with Paul and Timothy, we see the mentor relationship, uh, the discipling relationship. We can build relationships. If we're, if we're younger, and or, or whether we're young or, or not, but if someone's more mature than us and we need wisdom, we should get with them, we should meet with them, and learn from them. And if we're older, perhaps, and wiser, uh, we should be uh, seeking out those who might could benefit from our help. Well, uh, the church must go on. And it will go on because Christ promised to build it. But he builds it through that generational work. That's part of it. And so we need to pray. Keep praying that God would send families to us with young children. I heard about a church recently in, in, in the upstate 
that had kind of become, uh, as our own church has become, without many children. But through prayer, they saw God completely turn the church around. And today, that same church is filled with families and children. So let's continue to pray uh, that God would build up and raise up a, a new generation of Christians even here uh, in our own church. I'm going to ask now the elders to come forward as we uh, come to the